Zenny Jardin is um, self-described on the Boing Boing website, the website that she helped found, as a tech culture journalist and internet explorer. I think that uh, that uh, is, is an understatement. Zenny is one of a kind, really, and Boing Boing, if you're not familiar with it, is a wonderful site for kind of interesting things, goofy things, scientific things, fascinating things of all kinds, and is always the most eclectic of, uh, of sort of an assembly of, of stuff. For instance, from yesterday's top four stories, um, the top one was Tom the Dancing Bug, Definitely not gay men meets his arch nemesis. It's a comic. That was the, yes. The, uh, the number two, using chocolate to teach calculus. Three was an excerpt from a short story collection by a musician whose style has been reviewed as a combination of Mexican-style corridos, stomping blues, shit-kicking country and western, and other forms of great American music. And then came Zenny's piece yesterday, which was actually a, uh, a video of a hapless television producer in Sacramento, <laughs> California, being assaulted by a turkey. And I mean being assaulted like Jaws went after, you know, <laughs> those guys in that boat. It was really quite fascinating and hilarious. I guess my point is that Zenny is a, an eclectic thinker, a serious person, with a sense of humor and a lot of knowledge about the web. We're very, very glad to have you with us today. Thank you very much. Uh, well, I want to, in turn, introduce you to uh, our esteemed guest today, Miles O'Brien. Uh, I, I first met Miles, uh, I don't know, I think it was maybe six, seven years ago, uh, when I was a guest on his uh, American Morning Show on CNN. For those of you uh, in the room who are not familiar with Miles, he is a 30-year uh, veteran broadcast journalist. I know you hate the word veteran, <laughs> but you've been, you've been doing what you do for, for three decades. Uh, 17 of those were with CNN as an anchor and a reporter uh, primarily focused on science and technology and space. Um, Miles, when I think of, of space reporting, uh, I think of Miles uh, covered um, how many space shuttle launches was it? Oh, about 45 or so. 45, 45 or so yeah. space shuttle launches and uh, many other uh, historic events related to our exploration of space. Uh, when CNN shut down its science and technology division, uh, as a personal disclosure here, I had, I had hoped to work with CNN. I actually went to interview uh, with John Klein and, and some of the other guys there and, and met Miles around that time. Um, a, a little side note, I. When I went in for my big interview with John Klein, I told him, he, he, the first thing he asked me was, what does 1337 mean, Shenny? What does 1337 mean? Because you wrote something about one of our anchors. You said he was 1337, and I really want to know what that means. Are you trying to insult our anchor? And I said... He was looking for an excuse to fire <laughs> me at that point, so... <laughs> I said, no, that, um, I was just making a joke that uh, Miles O'Brien, despite the fact that he's with a big TV network, is leet. It's a hacker slang for someone who uh, really knows their stuff. And Miles does. Um, I didn't end up getting the job at CNN, and uh, Miles ended up leaving when they closed down science and technology. Um, at, at Boing Boing, we started a, an online video project called Boing Boing TV, 
we ended up collaborating a few times, and, and there was this interesting period for you where you began exploring the internet as something that was just as valid and far more freeing than what you'd been doing with, with this big news network. And from there, Miles went on to PBS. He's, uh, he's done work for Discovery, for, um, and then on PBS with Frontline, with NewsHour, um, some work with Nova as well. Um, lots of different stuff, but, but I feel like your work has become even more interesting since you've left CNN. Well, thanks. Yeah. In the absence of gainful employment, I figured out something to do, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I thought it would be interesting for all of you here, since the theme of this event uh, is uh, politics and media, but also looking forward to the future about what, uh, where our news will come from, what platforms will emerge as viable platforms, not only in terms of their, their ability to disseminate information and to generate conversations, but how <coughs> folks like Miles and, frankly, like me, uh, will be paid for that work. Where, where's the business model? Where's the sustainability model? Um, so to that end, I offer you a case study, <laughs> Miles O'Brien. And, and an another little aside I want to share, Miles is uh, a pilot. And he reports a lot on aviation. He did this amazing series for uh, Frontline, Flying Cheaper, uh, fly, Flying Cheap, which was and followed cheaper. by was a, a, a follow-up sequel. Flying Cheap flying is cheaper. just coming up, I think. We'll, we'll have to work on that. Which should terrify any one of us who fly uh, commercial here in the U.S. But uh, so he flies a, a two-seater, four-seater, four-seater Cirrus, yeah. four Cirrus, and uh, flew here today, uh, just barely missing this storefront, stormfront. Uh, that we're dealing with now. So, Miles, I, I thought we'd begin, if you could just share a little of how you ended up in the news business in the first place. What was it that, that brought you here? And I think there's a local connection, if I remember right. Yeah, well, I, I grew up in uh, Detroit, outside of Detroit, and uh, no one I knew was in the media business. Uh, but I always had a fascination uh, with writing, with photography. I started a newspaper, an alternative newspaper at my high school. I was the editor of the yearbook and so forth. It was just something that fascinated me. But everybody I knew, one way or another, was involved in building automobiles. And so it didn't seem to me that something as fun as this could actually be a job. And so um, one thing led to another. I ended up at Georgetown uh, majoring in history. And again, uh, I um, found myself spending a lot of time at the newspaper offices there for no credit uh, as the editor there and so forth. And Eventually, it occurred to me that you could actually make a living doing this, and I took an internship at uh, WRC uh, slash NBC on Nebraska Avenue, and uh, really never turned back. I was um, became instantly fascinated by uh, the business and the fact that you could actually make a living doing it made it very uh, interesting to me. And so, uh, at the end of the internship, they offered me a job, midnight to eight, ripping wire copy. Remember those days? <laughs> actually, had to distribute it around the newsroom and. Um, I was off to the races. Matter of fact, I, I left with a, a semester to go at Georgetown. I figured I'd go back. And I just started going back last semester. So eventually, <laughs> I'll get my undergrad degree. We're, we're both college dropouts, but now yeah. I like to say just like Steve Jobs. <laughs> <laughs> and so, Bill Gates, right. for that matter. So uh, take us to uh, where you, how you ended up at CNN from there. Well, so I, you, and, and you, were to, you did not study science. You did not study technology as, as a major. No, I ran away from science. Uh -huh. I thought it was terrible. And we can talk about that later, because I think I was a product <laughs> of the educational system in this country that doesn't teach it very well. I think I had a natural affinity for it, uh -huh. but I didn't realize that, because I don't think I was taught it very well. I was here in Boston. I was working in local news at uh, Channel 7. Uh, I, uh, at the time, it was um, 
operated and owned by uh, Dave Mugar, and uh, there was a, a significant cutback in the newsroom, uh, about a 40% cut. I, I survived the cut, uh, but I wrote a little op-ed piece which appeared in the Boston Herald, and um, it was not very uh, complimentary <laughs> toward Mr. Mugar and his operation, and so I was fired. And um, I, so I fell on my sword, and I ended up over at the, uh, remember the Monitor Channel? Christian Science Monitor Channel, and uh, which was a fascinating place. That was, that was an interesting story in its own right. And I was sitting in a cubicle one day working on a story of the day. And at the time, it was fascinating because I was at the, the Christian Science Monitor Channel, and Magic Johnson has ju had just announced he had HIV. And I was assigned that story. You can imagine the editorial complications <laughs> that I had to deal with with the Christian Science Church and managing those scripts through the process. But I was working on one of those one day, and uh, the, the person next to me uh, hung up the phone, and she was kind of gasping. She said, do you know anything about science? I said, no, why do you ask? And she said, well, you know, CNN is looking for a science correspondent. And um, I said, hmm, I, I don't know much about science. I know a little about CNN, however. And she said, I said, are you going to apply? She said, oh, no, I'm afraid of science. I said, well, do you mind if I take that name? And she said, fine. So I called up Bailey Barish, who was the science editor at CNN at the time, who is former molecular biologist. She was a real scientist. And I managed to cobble together enough of a tape that had enough technical stuff on it to send to her and, and impress her enough to get an interview, which turned out to be a two-day ordeal, a gauntlet, really. Written test, verbal test. They sent me out on a a story that I had to produce and shoot. They, they made me, of course, read it in front of the camera and so forth. And uh, I flunked horribly. I mean, I, they asked me, this is 1992, and they asked me about global warming and the ozone hole and uh, how the two relate to each other, and I knew nothing about any of those things. So uh, I was the history major. And Couldn't so, you just Google it? <laughs> it was this, yes. It, <laughs> oh, gosh, those, those days, it's hard to imagine what yeah. we did without it. And so I finally got to the end of the line after this two-day ordeal to Bob Fernod, and uh, kind of looks at my phone. He goes, "Yeah, obviously you don't know shit about science." And <laughs> and I said, um, "This is being streamed out. You don't know doo-doo about science." And um, <laughs> and I said, "And that's you know, it's one of those critical moments in anyone's career. Or what do you do? Why, I, I just dropped back ten and threw the hail mary." And I said, "And that's why you want to hire me." <laughs> And I said, you know, because you, I, clearly, because I had done this story, the story was fine. I said, I'm not afraid of science. I may not be a scientist, but, you know, CNN is, after all, you're, you're going after essentially fifth graders, if you think about it, in some respects, a lay audience. Certainly not, it's not like I'm writing for some, the journal Science here. You want somebody who's not afraid of the subject, and uh, that's why you want to hire me. And I thought at that time that that was a bit of a stretch, but it's actually very true. And so... Uh, I ended up having a 17-year education in science, which it, it would be the envy of anybody, because I got to learn it from the Nobel laureates. It was great. And much of that was focused on space. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I was already a pilot, and I always had an interest in that. And Your, uh, your family. There's a family connection. Yeah, I'm actually a third-generation general aviation pilot on both sides. My, my grandfather, who was from Boston, uh, had a 1933 Stinson... ER Reliant, which he kept at Logan Field back when it was grass, and he was a wool trader, and he would use the airplane to fly around to the mills in upstate New York and sell wool, and so I guess it was in my blood. Wow. So, space. Space. Well, when, when, when I arrived at CNN, John Holloman was the, the space correspondent. He was a CNN original and a great guy, a good friend of mine, and 
And I was kind of, as the science correspondent, I would buttress his coverage and, and helped him out in, in any number of ways. And when it came time for John Glenn to fly in the shuttle back in October of 1998, uh, Holloman uh, got his wheels turning and, and called up Walter Cronkite and asked him to participate in uh, the broadcast, the CNN broadcast of John Glenn's return to flight. And, and uh, at that time, Walter, CBS wasn't utilizing Walter at that time at all, and he said yes. And so uh, that was, everybody at CNN was quite excited about that prospect. Unfortunately, uh, and sadly, John Holloman was killed in an automobile accident about six weeks before that launch. And so uh, I got called into Tom Johnson's office, uh, who was running CNN at the time, and literally on the day of Holloman's funeral, and he said, I need you to go up to New York and convince Walter to work with you on this launch. Wow. And, uh, you know, Walter didn't really know me, and he had had this relationship with Holloman, but he, he did not feel comfortable because he didn't know me. And so I had to go up there and, and convince Walter Cronkite that I knew enough about space. So that was, that was a rather <laughs> interesting time in my life. I managed to convince him uh, that that was the case, and I had the most remarkable experience working with him all throughout that uh, launch. I remember there was... There was, there was one or more rather funny anecdotes of the actual launch day. Well, you know, it was interesting because, uh, you know, he, one of the things which I didn't realize is, I don't know, is Rick Kaplan still here? But apparently Walter didn't typically wear um, an earpiece during his broadcast. You know, and if he did wear an earpiece, he never had the producers in his ear because he always had Sandy Sokolow kind of underneath the desk handing him the cues, you know. So we had, we had to hire Sandy on top of that, which was great, too. But... Um, so, you know, there was, there was kind of this, you know, hearing issue as well. He was, at that point, rather hard of hearing. And um, he still, um, he was 82 during the mission. I turned 82 during the mission. And he was, um, you know, in Walter Cronkite style, you know, because he still thought he could, he, he had the, the mojo. He would show up 30 seconds, 15 seconds before each live shot which typically was fine because I would just kind of cover it until he got laced in and could hear and all that. But we had an in-flight interview planned, uh, which is, you know, logistically a difficult thing when you're talking to a space shuttle that's circling around the planet at 17,500 miles an hour. <laughs> and you want to make sure the audio is just right so that he can hear uh, the senator and vice versa. And CNN had promoted this live interaction between Walter Cronkite and John Glenn as if it were you know, the second coming or whatever you want to say. I mean, it was just extraordinary, the promotion that they put into it. And so uh, on that day, we went to Sandy, and we said, you know, Sandy, for this particular live shot, can we get Walter there a little bit early so we can get him laced up and, and the audio good and, and, and make sure that everybody's comfortable? Because, you know, when these things happen, when NASA says it happens at 10, 25, and 30 seconds, that's when it happens, and it's over five minutes later exactly on the balls, as they say in the, in the NASA business. <laughs> and so um, naturally, uh, the event comes. I'm there, ready to go. And Walter, Walter shows up 15 seconds before, 30 seconds before. He plugs in. You know, We do the, the uh, IFB check, and he can't hear anything. And this is right down to the wire. And so um, I said to the control room, uh, Sue Bunda was in the control room for us there. I said, you know, Walter can't hear anything. And she said, well, whatever you do, include him in this live event. If even if you have to be the translator and restate what Walter says and what John says back and forth, we're going to do this entire event. We promoted this event. You must include Walter in this. 
Almost simultaneously, Walter turned to me and said, whatever you do, do not include me in this event. <laughs> <laughs> if I cannot hear, <laughs> I don't even want a two-shot taken. Pretend I'm not here. <laughs> so what do you do at this point, right? At this point, I said, Walter still cannot hear. And at this point, I didn't realize how many people CNN had in Houston at the time until they were all at my feet, <laughs> doing this with cables, cords, turning everything, relaying cables, test checks, tech check, one, two, three, four, five. He can't hear a darn thing. And so, and meanwhile, they're in their control. I'm going, whatever you do, please, please include Walter. So Walter said, you know, if I can hear, I'll tap you on the arm, and you can come to me. So I see the, the, the moment comes, the music plays. Hello and welcome to, to Houston and the Johnson Space Center. I'm Miles O'Brien. We have a very special occasion where we'll be talking to uh, Senator Glenn and Commander Kurt Brown, and they start screaming in my ear, introduce Walter, introduce Walter. I mean, I, 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 I'm surprised you could hear it on the air. There probably was smoke coming out the other ear, you know, and I'm, I'm just powering through because he's still sitting there doing you know, this kind of like can't hear a thing. So I started... I, I began my introduction, and so this is the point. What do you do, right? Do you do you, um, do you please the person who writes your checks, your paycheck, <laughs> or do you insult and embarrass a national icon? Yeah. Given the choice, what would you do, right? You know, and so it was one of those moments where, you know, like in those <laughs> 1930s movies when the headlines <laughs> spin around on the newspapers, and I, I saw this headline, you know, upstart reporter embarrasses Uncle Walter, you know, and it was one of those things. And I was like, there was no way in hell I was going to make him look bad. If, if it was the last live shot I ever did for CNN, <laughs> this would be it. So I kept powering through. They're screaming at me. And just as I introduced Senator Glenn and was about to ask the question, I get the tap. <laughs> And joining me is Walter Cronkite, at which point I just sunk down <laughs> under the desk and let him do the rest of it. Truly, there was somebody looking down upon me at that moment. So I lost about five years of my life, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> and, and five decibels of your hearing. Wow, yeah. So that, no doubt, prepared you for uh, all of the, the webcasts that you did when you left CNN. So when you left CNN, you teamed up with this group, uh, Space Flight Now, the guys from Astronomy Magazine uh, yeah. in, uh, in, in Florida. You started doing this series of live webcasts of events uh, at, at Kennedy Space Center. Well, you know, it's interesting. When, I, when CNN, in its infinite wisdom, uh, eliminated the science and technology in it, uh, and just quick little parenthetical on that, you know, the, uh, as altruistic as Ted Turner is, as much as he loves the environment and science and technology, the reason that there was a science unit at CNN goes back to the very beginning of CNN, when they were, they were happy to have Zamfir the Fluke Guy advertising on CNN at that time, right? And, and the, the record ads and everything. And AT&T approached CNN and said, we would like to sponsor three science spots a week and a weekly show to, to bring it all together. And each of these spots would be uh, directly linked to a, uh, an ad, to a commercial. And at that time, they were like, yeah, of course. And so they created the science unit uh, based on that whole thing. Well, over time, the linkage between the spots and the, and the ads, which guaranteed that those science pieces would air in segments on CNN and gave us a specific uh, uh, show on Saturday mornings. That when that went away, we lost our, our footing at CNN. And we had to, we were out there along with everybody else trying to get on shows. And frankly, newsrooms are not filled with a lot of people who love science. You know, frankly, there's a lot of science phobics like my former self. And so over time, it became very, very difficult for us to get science pieces on the air, and eventually uh, the shoe dropped. So when, when I realized that 
that uh, CNN was going to get rid of us all. We didn't, we didn't know enough about Michael Jackson or Charlie Sheen or whatever, so I, I can see why they get rid of us. And uh, the, I, I, I didn't know what to do and where to go, but one of the things that came up almost immediately was there was going to be a shuttle launch, and I didn't want to miss a shuttle launch. And so it occurred to me, you know, I have obviously a lot of friends in the uh, space journalism community, and it occurred to me that technology had progressed such that really with a, you know, a laptop and a camera augmented by NASA's uh, video feeds, it would be possible to stream out a, a webcast of a launch in the, in the you know, inch-wide, 100-mile-deep way, as opposed to the opposite at CNN, where they would give me about two minutes, just long enough to get the solid rocket boosters off, basically there to see if it blows up, to do the opposite kind of coverage, very focused, niche coverage, uh, for very little money. Just basically the cost of a plane ticket and a T1 line to, with enough bandwidth to, to stream this thing out. And so I approached spaceflightnow.com, which already had a, you know, a, a good, healthy audience of space lovers, and we started doing these things. And uh, it, it was just fascinating to me how, um, first of all, how uh, the, the playing field had leveled. We, you know, we, there we were with our Macintosh and our little camera, and you, know, you look over and you see the trailers and the trucks and everything like that. And we developed an audience. Uh, we would, at any given time, have 250 to 300,000 people watching our stream, and a global audience, 160 nations. Yeah. So uh, it was it, the light bulb went on in my head that you know this this is really the, the notion of broadcasting. Uh, has its place, but there is also a space for providing a very tailored type of coverage. An audience will find you, an audience that has a, a deep interest in something like that. These were fascinating, by the way. I, I, I watched as many as I could uh, remotely from Los Angeles, and I, I joined your team on a couple of them. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was it was very strange sitting in the, I don't know how many of you have been to Cape Canaveral and, and been to the launch site, but there's a, a little square cinder block structure called the fishbowl, and this this is hallowed space in the history of broadcast journalism. It's where the very first launches were covered by, by news crews. Yeah, this is where they you know, conducted all the news briefings before the launch of Apollo 11 and so forth, is in this little you know, squat, cinder block building. Five but, feet away from yeah. this is where Miles and his crew were doing this live webcast with a T1 line, a whole bunch of coffee, and yeah. a few MacBooks. And what they did was, was richer and more informed uh, and, and for me, more fun than any of the major uh, news networks coverage. Well, in full disclosure, we monetized it in a, in a novel way, which uh, I'd be interested in your thoughts and questions on it. Um, instead of rolling spots, uh, I approached uh, Lockheed Martin and Boeing and United Space Alliance, all the big contractors uh, in the shuttle program, basically all the people that I would go to to populate a six-hour webcast with guests, and I said, um, you know, we, would you like to sponsor a block of time with me for your guest? In, in a sense, sort of almost an advertorial approach. And I said, you know, you, you can't, I'm not going to, uh, I'm still asking the questions. You can't provide the questions. We're going to disclose to the audience that this is an uh, advertiser-supported segment. And um, I, I was walked into this with a lot of trepidation. I never talked to anybody on the phone about you know paying for uh, ads or spots or whatever. So I would have been fired immediately at CNN, <laughs> of course. So uh, what was interesting about it was, and I deliberately did this, was I would, I would sit these guys down. These were guys who I would interview anyway, and they they we'd have 15, 20, sometimes 30 minute interviews with them, and I would ask them every 
high hard one I could come up with. But I also, it was in the context of a 15 or 20 minute interview, which uh, you know, allowed for a full range of questions. And what was interesting about it was, they, to a person they would walk away feeling it was, it was uh, a fair shake. And what I realized was, is that in the course of doing those two minute CNN drive-bys, where you only ask the one or two gotchas, people walk away feeling very abused. And, and they, have, they have a point. Uh, it's, 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 uh, you, you are left with only the questions that are just the uh, really out of context and uh, really unfair in, because they aren't set in the context of other questions and, and, and a full treatment of the story because it's just too quick. And so what was interesting was you can ask those questions, but people, only, people feel it's a fair shake if it's in the context of other questions. So I, I, I was pretty impressed with uh, the way that worked out. I, I walked into it a little concerned about the nature of the relationship, frankly. These were, by any uh, definition, in, in my opinion, some of the most successful and, and well-produced live event webcasts I've seen. And I, I've spent a lot of time with online video. One, one thing, I, I, I want to get to some broader questions that, that speak to the, the theme of the event. But I really want to share with the audience, too, the, the story of how you yourself almost became an astronaut. Yeah, well, what happened was, uh, actually, it really began with John Holloman, who spent a long time at CNN. Actually, he, he was pushing very hard on the Russian side of the program to um, go to space. This was before Dennis Tito flew. And he, he got pretty far down the road until the Russians uh, named the price. And, that was the end of that as far as Ted was concerned. I think, I think the Russians were willing to do it at that time before Dennis Tito flew for about six million bucks, which would have been a bargain, actually. Uh, but uh, Holloman came back from Moscow. Uh, he had gone with Ed, no relation to Ted Turner. They came back, and they were convinced they had a deal. They went right up to Ted Turner's office and said, hey, only four million bucks. He, was, he started laughing. And that was the end <laughs> of that. So um, when we lost Holloman and I moved into the full space um, position, then Dennis Tito flew, and that changed the equation a little bit and the thinking. And uh, at that time, uh, Eason Jordan at CNN approached me and said, why don't we start you know, pushing this? And for, literally for three years, I went back and forth between Russia and Houston and Washington trying to negotiate it. Uh, the truth was that CNN would, uh, he, they had told me that they, they would not do uh, anything with the Russians because they felt it wasn't as interesting a story. But I didn't tell NASA that. And eventually, eventually under Sean O'Keefe, previous NASA administrator, they agreed to do it. And we were, we were set to announce this uh, about 10 days after Columbia would have landed in February of 2003. And of course, when we lost uh, Columbia, that was, that was the end of that agreement. But uh, you know, what could you do? That's, uh, I guess that's one thing Walter and I have in common. He, he would have flown on, on the shuttle were it not for Challenger. For me, it was Columbia. <laughs> But uh, it, it's not too late, Miles. Yeah, the, well, the, shuttle, yeah. the shuttle program may have ended, but there, there are many more craft. I, I'm doing an event with Richard Branson on Tuesday in Las Vegas. Yeah. And I'm going to pin him down right there. <laughs> you need to be on that first Virgin yes, Galactic. That's flight. right. That's right. Well, much of uh, what you'll be talking about throughout this event here at the Shorenstein Center, uh, all of you here in the audience, has to do with, with media and politics. And, and thinking about that theme, I, I started thinking with you, Miles, about the role of, uh, of government in promoting and ensuring science literacy. Without a science literate population, without 
uh, education that gets people excited and engaged and feeling confident about science, math, technology, space as, as subjects that they can own. Would you have a job? Well, this, this, is, this one's a little bit above my pay grade, I think. But uh, I do think that you know, the National Science Foundation does a fair amount of outreach. Certainly NASA has a huge PR apparatus, which engages the public uh, on several levels. Um, but you know, I think you have to sort of step back and look at the educational system that turned me into a history major instead of a you know, biology major or, or physics. Uh, we, we, have a, we don't teach science very well to kids. Uh, we, we take what is actually as exciting a subject as you can imagine uh, about adventure, about exploration, about mysteries, and we turn it into memorization of the periodic table. And, and we lose people along the way. And so until, until we address this in, in a fundamental way at, 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 at the early stages of education, and we lose kids in the middle school time is when we lose them. That's when science becomes uncool, it becomes a little too complicated, uh, it, it, it becomes less interesting to people. Until we can keep people at that point, uh, I, 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 everything else will not follow, including interest in science in the mass media uh, and, and engage, you know, getting the, 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 the U.S. public behind the notion of, of science uh, in, a, in a more educated way. I mean, we have we, we do have a fundamental issue here. If you look at the, the political campaign on the Republican side, there seems to be um, a vehemence against knowledge, in particular science. Um, you know, you've got, you've got a, a candidate uh, who's running for president who doesn't believe there's global warming, and his state is on fire. You know, there's a little disconnect there. They may as well be flat earthers. Well. Yeah, I they guess may they, be. They may be. That's possible. <laughs> we should ask them. I don't know. Well, you know, with when when CNN shut down the Science and Technology Division, I, I felt like it was really downhill for from there for not only for CNN but for other networks as well. There there seems to, you know, broadcast news was never very kind to these topics, and uh, with this market becoming increasingly competitive, with the economic situation becoming increasingly dire. Uh, this is this is the first baby to be thrown out with the bathwater. But do you do you feel like do you feel like there's overall uh, worse access, less access to science information because of that? How much of a difference has that made? Yeah, you know, I, I looking at it now with a little more perspective, it, it, it you know I, I can see why science doesn't fit into the business model of cable news right now. You know, cable news it's about politics. It's, it's about, you know, people, lots of live shots and people opining on various things and offering their spin. They don't, they don't go out and, and spend as much time and effort on stories as they used to. And that goes for any subject. And so, you know, science became, you know, the, the fish nor fowl thing. So I, I get that for, the, for the, the cable news entities. There still is a lot of good science programming out there. I, I've just, you know, I've learned uh, the value of, of public Broadcasting, and maybe that goes back to what some of the government role should be is in supporting public broadcasting and not making it a political football. But there is really excellent science programming uh, on PBS with, with Nova and Nature, and uh, you know, on, on the News Hour, the, the grants that, that we have, some of it comes from the National Science Foundation, going back to your point, mm -hmm. some of them from foundations, uh, make it possible for us to do science programming that. Frankly, I, I couldn't do it at CNN. I do 
10, 12 minute pieces for the news hour and, and they're just pleased to have them. If, to do a 10 or 12 minute science piece on CNN, that would require an act of Congress, <laughs> you know? I mean, this is a, you know, and it, I still don't understand how you can be on 24 seven. I think that's the most time you can have. And, and yet, and then, Wait, let me Google that. Yes, <laughs> And, and yet, if, you, if I got two minutes for a science piece, I was happy. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's out there. It, the, the, going back to your question about whether people are interested, it's whether people want that content. I think there, there is an audience out there. I wish it were a little bigger, mm -hmm. but there, there's, there's stuff out there. You know, the, the stuff you see on Boing Boing, while you know, we were making fun of the turkey and all that, you have a science correspondent there, Maggie. We do. We have a full-time science extraordinary. And a yeah. full-time science editor. It was extraordinary. Her, her, her pieces are insightful, excellent, in-depth. And that's just one example of the kind of, of content that's out there if you're interested in finding it. So, so online is one place well, it, with I mean, kind of independent publications? I think these niches are being exploited by people like me, like you, and, and, and the world can, because of the, the changing nature, because of the tweets and all the ways we <laughs> have to connect with each other, people will find you, people who are interested in that subject. The, the concern, of course, that everybody has in all this is that we become we're all preaching to our individual choirs and we're not the, the, the serendipitous nature of learning something just by casually turning on the TV is it may be gone. But I, I, I'm convinced that the 250 or 300,000 people who are watching our six hour webcast of those shuttle launches, they weren't all the choir. Those, that, that was expanded and amplified in the exponential nature that, that social networking affords. So I think, I think the content is out there. I think if you want to learn about science and technology, you can. There's a lot, there's a lot of places to go. Uh, I still think we've got we to gotta work on the problem of making Americans uh, a little better science educated. You have a uh, college age son and daughter, 16 and 18. Uh, how do they get their news? And do you feel like they have the same kind of access, the same kind of ambient access to space technology and science information that you did at, at that age in your life. Yeah, I, you know, I, they are, they don't watch television in the sense that we all watch television. No. They're, they're, on, they're on the screens and they're, uh, what is it, is it stumble, stumble down? Stumble upon? Stumble upon, yeah. that's what my son loves. Boing Boing gets yeah. a lot of traffic yeah. from stumble and, upon. You know, so it's like a link sharing Facebook. service. The bottom yeah. line is, I, I think anything that my kids do, my, my son is a, a, a plebe at the Naval Academy, so yeah, right now he's kind of locked down, but uh, my daughter is a senior in high school. Well, everything they do involves a two-way transaction. It, it, the, the notion of, of broadcasting, of, of, of a one-way trip of, of information, I think uh, is an anathema to them. And I discovered that doing these webcasts, how powerful it is to have a conversation. We would be doing, as we'd be doing these six-hour webcasts, we'd be getting tweets and comments in. And, I literally, if I, if I forgot the, the mission or the person who was on a mission, I'd ask the <laughs> audience and they'd give me the answer in, in, in a millisecond. So it really was a two-way street. It was an ex extremely powerful uh, experience and so different than broadcasting. And I think that generation, my kids' generation, absolutely demands that kind of interaction. News is, is something to be shared, not to be consumed. So this idea that the Internet is making us dumber, you're not buying it? No, I don't buy it. I don't uh. buy it. Yeah. Let's uh, we think some questions from the audience, shall we? Yeah, great. You started to talk about, you know, Boing Boing as a place for serious journalism as well as 
you know, crazy turkeys. Now be kind. Mm -hmm. No, I'm, I'm quite serious about this. They, she yeah. calls herself the cat lady of the internet. So as be you, careful here. As you think about models for delivering news of all kinds, in your case, science, is the Boing Boing model one that is going to be something that is going to be emulated and copied repeatedly? And is that, in your opinion, uh, an effective, good, and big way of delivering important information. And how do you go about the, the, the mix of turkeys and other stuff? We like to joke internally that uh, Boing Boing is a mix of um, kittens, news, and righteous outrage. And on any given day, I, I haven't seen the post today. I've been busy preparing for this, but I, I imagine you'll find uh, goofy internet pictures, righteous outrage about you know Apple or Dell doing something bad, and some big news event. We've been doing a lot of coverage of the whole Occupy Wall Street movement and WikiLeaks, which Ken Aletta was talking about a little earlier. Uh, the the shortest answer is that Boing Boing is whatever its editors and contributors are obsessed with on any given day. We're um, we're you know, wonky and obsessive about uh, science and politics and technology, but there's one editor who is nuts about ukuleles and another one who you can't get him to shut up about homemade clocks. I have tried. <laughs> and then there's me you know, with the animated GIFs. Uh, the business model behind Boing Boing is very much a happy accident. I, I wasn't a founder of, of Boing Boing in the 80s when it was a zine, but I was one of the founding partners when it became a business. I don't know. Um, I don't know if we will emulate Boing Boing's business model five years from now, because so much, so much is changing in in ways that are sometimes frightening to us about the online advertising market. We're thinking about new models of sponsorship along the lines uh, of what Miles was describing earlier for the webcasts. Uh, I don't know exactly where display advertising rates will go in the future. the The shortest way to describe kind of where we are and what instructive lesson there may be for anyone else is that we have always kept our overhead as, as lean as possible. Uh, we are a virtualized company. We don't have one physical location where anyone, more than one person works at a time. And we have always thought of this as a business that we, we would like to support a lifestyle where we get to do work that we love. We've been offered opportunities to cash out, to sell, and we always just ask ourselves, what would we rather be doing than this? This, which also gives us freedom to you know, do work in other organizations or write books or do whatever. There's nothing. So keeping things lean, truly, truly doing what you love, and, uh, and, and keeping at it, waking up every day and, and doing that work, uh, that's, that's the best instruction I can offer anyone. But I think key point is there, there's no editorial hierarchy at Boing Boing. Each of the individual partners, main people involved, yeah. post on their own, and you don't approve their copy and vice versa. So th that kind of haphazard nature, I think, becomes the charm. Yes. It certainly becomes the character yeah. of Boing Boing. Sometimes, on some days, that's a good thing. On yeah. some days, for perhaps it's But if it filtered through one individual, it, probably, it wouldn't be the yeah. same at all. Yeah. It's a fun experiment. Please. Hi, uh, Shirley Lord Rosenthal at Vogue. Uh, my late husband, Abe Rosenthal, uh, created Science Times 
for the New York Times and the business department said he stole Tuesday. They were furious. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, it, but in the end... They're still it, going, thank God. <laughs> it was a great success. And Joan Gans Cooney created Sesame Street. Yeah. Do you think... I'm Actually, it was only today, it's sitting at breakfast, that someone said the LA Times had cancelled its science coverage, and I was shocked. Yeah. I just had no idea until hearing you about CNN. Do you, particularly as it's a time, I'm in Marvin's camp, that I don't understand half of what's said in the technological <laughs> world, that science is something that I gravitate to and want, but that's my, isn't it the kids that are really going to push for this and it perhaps uh, comics and every, I mean, to try, it's, this, it's interesting that Abe introduced this and at the time it was a shock Will you take a column on computers? You know, I mean, back yeah, late yeah, 60s, yeah. 70s. So today, trying to think of this shocking news to me, thinking that everybody would be more interested in science, is it going to come through the children? You, you would think they'd be more interested in science, wouldn't you? But, uh, you know, I think, I, I, first of all, I've never met a kid who isn't a natural scientist. You know, why is the sky blue, Daddy? That's, that's a scientific <laughs> question, right? So somehow we get that wrung out of us along the way. We have a feature on Boing Boing every Saturday called Science Questions from a Toddler, and I think that was actually one of the questions. Yeah, yeah. So it's, um, and, and so, yes, I think if we can sort of capture that enthusiasm that, that, that young people have and, and keep that going, uh, I, th I think we're going to be better off. I think, you know, there are places now, there are more and more places for, for kids of any age and adults to find that kind of material. Uh, I, still, I still feel like the classroom has to change in order to, to, to make really science literate adults in, the, in this country. But, but having said that, I don't believe we have a dearth of, con of content and uh, my kids know how to find what is of interest to them and they will find it. I'm Ed Baumeister. I was a fellow here in 1993, and at the time I was a high priest. <laughs> I was an editor, a gatekeeper. So I'm, what do you call it, old school. <laughs> what I'm not, all this distribution, uh, connecting, uh, democratization, all these functions of the technological change I think are wonderful, but what I don't hear is the effect on the formation of what we used to call news. And I hear news, to me, was definable. But I hear people talking about data and information as if they had a single positive value. So I'm wondering, I think you're probably both old enough to remember the old system, or I can recommend a couple of books that <laughs> would tell you. What's the book? Where, where is... <laughs> Is there, as there is a revolution in distribution and democratization, is there any similar movement, I won't ask for a revolution, in the generation of high quality, verified, that's what we high priests used to do, verified information that is then put on this marvelous new system? Yeah, so how, how were things edited, in other words, without an editor? No, 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 not only that. Yeah. How is, is there offered by this new system an advantage? Are there advantages in gathering in the first place, then verifying, editing, if you will, and then distributing? I mean, where's the, 
Where's the quality advantage for the stuff that people consume, however? Well, it's, first of all, I, I, I'll never forget, this happened to me on more than one occasion at CNN, where I would, uh, in, back in the days of uh, tape, uh, before any CNN science piece would air, I'd have to play it for the supervising producer. And on more than one occasion, I'd pop it in, they watch the two and a half minutes, and they go, wow, I know that's science, but that's interesting. <laughs> so, so the gatekeepers can be an impediment. Right? Oh, I was one. Yeah. And so what I think ha has happened as all of this has sort of flattened out is that you have a collective audience of natural editors that gather around their areas of expertise. Now, wait a minute. What's a natural editor? Well, I just think that anything that is posted and is wrong, you're going to hear about it in a millisecond. Well, that's you no do. reacting. An editor, a high priest, if you will, yeah. was <laughs> someone formed as such. Right. Either on the job or, or in the school. Well, and of course, they are infallible, aren't they? All no, 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 no. Right? I'm, not, I'm just looking for the for the quantitative advantage, right? and it, there must be. There must be, because there just I, must be. I, what think, is it? I think there's an advantage because you end up with people who really know something becoming the de facto editors of content, of information, of what we call news. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, is a de facto editor as good as a, a guy who went to Columbia Journalism School? or The de facto the, editor may well be somebody who's out of work well and went to Columbia Journalism School. That, that, this is really not my question. Yeah. But in the identifying of material that should be gathered, verified, and shared with fellow citizens, press, politics, public policy, is there, at the moment, or is there developing an advantage in that process, which comes before this marvelous distribution process? I think the advantage is you have physicists weighing in on articles about physics instead of an editor who went to the Columbia Journalism School. Mm -hmm. That's what happens, because everybody, ha everybody weighs in. Everybody checks you. There, there is an, an instant reaction to the world on things that are wrong. You hear it all the time, right? I, I, I would agree, and I would just add, like, I love high priests. I love editors. My mother was a, a copy editor for a, a big arts publication. Um, we're not doing what we do at Boing Boing, and our peers aren't doing what they do on other um, new media sites and new media ventures because we hate the old way of doing things. Uh, we're doing this because the old system and these old established companies don't have jobs or roles for us. Or if they do, they're not jobs or roles that we want. It's not a platform that makes sense for us. I, I worked at NPR. I, I've contributed to the New York Times, to Wired, to many other publications that are, that are part of that conventional media establishment, I guess, by any other, by any other description. And I found myself frustrated time and time again by having to go through um, a, a hierarchy of editors who I felt didn't understand this world that I'd adopted as my own. And the great thing about this site that I run with, with friends who are now business partners is that it gives, it gives me the freedom to explore those stories and be paid for telling those stories uh, in, in a way that, that doesn't limit the geekiness, that doesn't limit the specificity. Um, we, I, I think that, that that process, that kind of naturally evolving process, puts more pressure on the reporter to do their job right and 
within five seconds of putting out a post every day, even if it's just something stupid about one of the animated cat gifs, if, if there is any lack of specificity or if I've blown a little detail, five seconds, 10 seconds, I'll get a correction. I'll, I'll g give you an example. Um, Dennis Ritchie, the man who developed the C programming language, the computer scientist from Bell Labs who co-created Unix. I had a, a little glitch in the headline. I think I said that he co-developed C. And 10 seconds later, I just 20 guys on Twitter and in the comments were saying, he didn't co-develop C. He was the godfather of C. He wrote it with his bare hands. How could you do that to Dennis M. Ritchie? You know. I don't think an editor would have responded with such passion, and they probably wouldn't have responded so, so quickly. And damn it if I didn't correct that you know, while the fire was lit. Yeah. Uh, Carl Hackerainen, AKA Roaster Boy. Um, the, the point that we're discussing, I think, you know, one is you know, this is a very new, uh, I'm not even sure we can call it a process yet, but it reflects more of the peer review process in real time with a much broader audience. So instead of having a panel of 12 uh, selected ex experts reviewing an article, you now have the, uh, the Twitter sphere, which can uh, bring down wrath as needed or uh, spread the good word very quickly. So while, it's, while it is a new and evolving model <laughs> from the old editorial structure, uh, the, the vetting that goes on in real time for lots of this content is, is I think, very, very intense uh, with people who are uh, passionate about what they're doing and also damn smart. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's the important thing. Uh, and what, what it means is that for some of this stuff, it will not be settled. I mean, you, th there are lots of nuances regarding climate change. There are lots of nuances regarding uh, the data produced by government on any manner of things, some of which is fueled politically, some of which is fueled, uh, you know, as we look at, for example, the recent uh, uh, rulings reg or recommendations regarding screening for prostate cancer a couple of years ago, Bramograms, uh, intensely fought debates over what should be matters of science because it is you know, real people. You know, you know, Jeff Jarvis going uh, off the rails really on uh, you know, some of the discussion regarding the prostate screening, uh, but based on taking science as we understand it now in all of its murkiness and all of its muddiness and trying to apply it to real life. You know, what do I do today uh, as you know, a, a guy in his 60s? You know, do I have that screening or not, you know, and, and those, those are hard questions and those are real questions, but that is being slugged out because science is not a settled thing. It's not an encyclopedia. It's not given down from the high priest. It's an evolving process and this new system, which is also, I mean, the wonderful scene from Wallace and Gromit, The Wrong Trousers, where they're building the railroad bridge as they're driving over it. That's <laughs> what we're doing. And I think we've got to, um, you know, we don't know where the other end is going to touch down. For sure. Nice. George Mokre, independent scholar and fellow happy mutant. Right on. Hi. <laughs> How are you doing? G Mo. Do you guys have a secret handshake or something like that? If I told you. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Thanks. 
I'll um, find it out WikiLeaks. Right. If we're talking about politics and media, you brought up something in passing that I think should we should spend a little bit more time on. The fact is that, by my recollection, there's one Republican candidate for president in the debates who actually believes in climate change and other parts of science. There may be Buddy Romer doesn't get in the debates, but so yeah. I don't know what his position is. But you do have a kind of political tribal system now where one tribe rejects a lot of science. How do you talk to those people? How do you interview politicians who, who don't believe in facts and figures that are down in black and white that 97% of the experts in the field who devoted their lives to it say this is what's happening to the best of our knowledge and the best of our ability. You talk to them very slowly, <laughs> one syllable at a time. And does no, that I bring a translator? I don't know. Yeah, no. It's, it's, it always reminds me of Pat Moynihan's famous comment: "You're entitled to your own opinions, not your own facts." And and that's where we are right now. And, and somehow that it is it has devolved into that. But you know, politics and science don't mix well because the processes are, are so different. You know, it's debating society versus peer review, and and it's an apple and an orange. It, it doesn't. It doesn't mix well, and, and, and the fact that the, the debating society doesn't appreciate what peer review really means is, is a real problem. And frankly, goes, I had to, hate to harp on it, but goes back to our fundamental uh, lack of appreciation for science in this country, and, and the fact that we are not uh, scientifically um, uh, as well-versed as we should be collectively. And I think as long as the American people don't understand science fundamentally, that political gamesmanship will continue. Yeah, I, I don't know which frightens me more, the fact that having a candidate like that in the office is a very real prospect, or the fact that we may end up with another four years of a president who is currently investigating my friend's email. You know, Jake Applebaum, the, that, that yeah. case uh, terrifies me. This is a guy I know. They're going after email data for the past two years from uh, uh, one of the developers of the Tor project, my email's in that batch. Yep. Am I an enemy of the state? No, it's not good times for, for technology research. Yeah, NSA has a large warehouse where they're storing a lot of information. I hope they have Boing Boing's archives in there too. They're capturing this as we speak. Yeah. Yes. Hi, my name is Ed Nico, and I'm a adjunct lecturer here at the Shorenstein Center. But in the earlier kind of discussion about editors and the role of editors, uh, it, it, it seemed like, uh, it, it seemed, it's, from what I understood you, you said about the Boing Boing model, it's like an economic necessity that you can't really afford editors, right? Yes. Not necessarily about the potential value they you, might you add to You said it more them, right? um, succinctly than I did. That's exactly And so I'm kind of wondering about, when I, when I look at online models for journalism, I don't, I don't really see any that support any real scale. Like, and, like, I don't know how many people are employed by Boing Boing, but it seems like it's not more than 10. You're correct. And so I, I'm just wondering about, uh, you know, is, do you think that's mostly the future of online models for journalism, at least ones that make money? Is that they're all relatively small scale? And what are the implications of that for the kinds of coverage that's possible? Are there any ProPublica people in the house? 
So we love ProPublica, and we look to you as an inspiration. <laughs> we, we look to you as uh, inspiration and, and hope and uh, an experiment that's kind of living itself out in real time that might point the way towards, towards something else that's possible. Um, you asked about the future. I, I don't know about the future, but I do know that that is a pretty good reflection of the now, that uh, a number of the other uh, organizations that we consider, that we Boing Boing consider to be peers, are kind of functioning on that um, as lean as possible, as small as possible, Unfortunately, there's not a lot of room for um, secondary editorial staff to sort of support the, the main reporting staff. Uh, but we're, I individually am, am as interested as anyone in, in um, a, a diversity of models. I think diversity is good. We don't have the same kind of funding structure or the same mission that an organization like ProPublica does. But the fact that there are uh, a lot of um, semi-disenfranchised, frustrated, talented writers and reporters and editors out, out there trying to, trying to figure out a place in the world for, for their work, for their ideas, for their passion. I think that's a good thing. I th you know, I think uh, I always like to make the kind of the retail analogy. I think we're, we're in the boutique era of journalism. You know, and boutiques can coexist with Walmart as long as they're offering true value added. So it's kind of like the long tail. Uh, we're in a long tail uh, era because technology has enabled Boing Boings and, and Miles with his camera and his laptop to reach an audience. And it, it's hard to imagine what I do scaling up because it's kind of got this little narrow niche, but there is a business to be had there, a smaller business. On top of that, there'll be people that will aggregate all those little boutiques and make it easier for you to find them. Uh, but I think that's where we are now, and I, I, see, I don't see that trend changing anytime soon. We got one minute, so this will be the last, I guess. Hi, uh, my name is Alexi. I'm a student at the Kennedy School, uh, and my previous education was in uh, mathematics and uh, science. Um, my question's about, I guess, you were speaking about the, um, the first of all, the, the sort of poor state of science uh, understanding in the public in the U.S., and I completely agree, but um, you also mentioned sort of this, um, you know, science and technology is leaving um, sort of mainstream media because it's it's just there just aren't enough people who are asking for it, and sort of this idea of the media is driven by supply and demand. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I guess my question is is how how much can we sort of just just pass this off in a way as well that there just aren't people out there who who want this, and how much is it really? A fact that you know, if you're not hearing about this as a child, and media uh, isn't telling you about science, technology, and society isn't telling you that it's important. I mean, isn't that just self like reinforcing the cycle? Um, you know, did, if we really expect people to go out as adults or even as young people and ask about science and technology, well, we've already created a system where they can't do that because we haven't given it to them, haven't given that option to learn about it. So, um, do you think there's any sort of uh, I guess, especially for, for public airwaves, I mean, not really, I mean, just generally for television, I guess, less so than the internet. Uh, is there any sort of moral responsibility that, that um, should come into play in this, or is it simply a sort of supply and demand, you need to make money as CNN, so you should show, you know, sex and violence, because that's what sells. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, <laughs> it, it's, it's a dive to the bottom. Uh, you know, there's no question, and, and it's all about profit. We know how that all works, and, you know, when, when Marvin began at CBS, the news divisions were there for other reasons besides profit. And uh, th those days are long gone. And, and so I think to look to the mainstream media and say, um, you know, why don't you do this because of some sort of noblesse oblige or altruism, uh, that's not going to happen. 
uh, what, what heartens me is my kids don't watch that anyway. So, you know, if, if you're concerned that my kids are not getting enough science because it's not in the CBS Evening News or on CNN, they're not there anyway. So uh, we'll, we'll find them by other means. And, and we are finding them by other means. And, and let the, the mainstream news entities march on and, and do what they do and, and make their money, but just, you know, consider that the content is, is, is narrower than it used to be. Thank you both. Thank you. Right. Pleasure.